Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Knox, how you doing today, sir? Hey, welcome back, everyone. I'm doing well. I just wanted to say something brief to the listeners. I I really want you to look forward to this podcast as a way as a way of bringing a smile to your week or to uplifting you. Um, helping to bring you joy and empowerment because that's really what I think this is about is is uh, welcome I guess <laughs> welcome back to another week and I hope that we're like this is why why I'm doing this is to bring joy and uplift to people's weeks with that let's just go ahead and uh, jump into some news and before we get to the news, because we don't have a lot of it, this was a good time to mention one of our other favorite podcasts, the Mormon News Report, which is a podcast that covers the week in Mormon news with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brant and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on all the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. That is the Mormon News Report. Okay. So all I wanted to talk about this week briefly was what's going on with the royal family. Now, the royal family doesn't have a lot of, a ton of political pull, the way I understand it, in uh, Britain. If someone like the Brits I talk to pretty much liken their relationship to the rest of the Britain, like the Kardashians. Like, they're high-profile folks, but they don't have a lot of <laughs> political pull. They have a lot of influence. They have a global brand. They just do not have as much political influence as we might think. Now, what's been happening this week, if, if you haven't heard, Meghan Markle and her husband, Prince Harry, are stepping back as senior members of the royal family, relocating to the States and, quote, carving out a progressive new role within the new royal, within the royal family. So basically, they're leaving, they're leaving the royal family. They got out. Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised by this really because particularly because of the way they treated uh, Megan ever since she arrived, ever since she started dating Harry. And Britain seems really shocked by this on the other hand, though they've made their collective disdain of Megan known pretty much ever since she arrived. Like, I don't, I just don't think they anticipated that she was going to take Harry with her. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I think they just I'd wanted, take Harry with me. Like they just wanted her out. They didn't like her, but when like Megan was like, "We out," and I'm taking Harry with me, that's when all of Britain collectively lost their mind. You know what I'm saying? We got a, but again, it's not that surprising when you consider what we got going on in Britain and what Britain is. You know that they they got a prime minister who makes racist comments on the regular. They they got Brexit, which is a vaguely veiled attempt to get immigrants of color out of the country and keep them out of Britain. Not to mention the direct attacks that Megan herself has been facing ever since she arrived. Like they, the British tabloids likened her child to a chimpanzee, which is just messed up. Um, they criticized her for stuff that other Royals were quietly praised for. And they also suggested that her avocado consumption somehow aided terrorism. Like, I, I don't know where they're getting this stuff. But, like, the whole point is, when you look at the big picture of what Britain is, the history of British colonialism and imperialism and racism and also the way they've been treating Meghan, it's just like, can y'all really be shocked 
that Megan is leaving and taking Harry with her and that Harry has, you know, he said on many occasions that he has that he has a duty to protect his family. Like, can you really be surprised that he's going with her or that they're piecing out like Harry's been a critical part of the British of the royal family's global brand or whatever. But, you know, it makes total sense that they just up and left. It it just seems a bit disingenuous to display the amount of shock that they're displaying. What do you think? Yeah, it's just, yeah, like the whole thing is just set up so that people of color can't win. Yeah, like no matter how yeah. educated you are, accomplished you are, beautiful you are, like it's it's not enough to escape the... It's not enough to escape the disdain of white folks. Like that's, I, I told you this on the show a while ago. Obama is one of the reasons I don't really subscribe to respectability politics anymore. Like he was the perfect picture of, like my mom basically raised me to be that guy, you know, articulate, charming, handsome, educated, like all that stuff that white folks are supposed to like. But that didn't. Well, that's what I like about you. Thank you, Derek. But that didn't exe- <laughs> that didn't exempt Barack Obama from all the criticism that he got, like all the undue criticism he got, and his family. And we're seeing that same thing happen happening with Megan. Like Megan, Megan can pass. You know what I'm saying? And she's still facing all of this. And it's just yet another example of no matter how much we do, it's just not going to be enough. And then what bugs me is white people who get who just get upset at that and don't acknowledge that there's white privilege mm. or they'll say like I'm not privileged or you know what I'm it's just really difficult because just even the concept of white privilege makes some white people nervous and yeah, upset nervous, and, and, uncomfortable, like, and all this fr- fragility yeah. but yeah it is it is what it is. You, you get a lot of those folks who are trying to say that their disdain of Megan it doesn't have anything to do with doesn't have anything to do with racism, but it's just really hard to ignore all the signs, all the incidents, and further just what Megan has experienced since she's since she's arrived. So, you know, best of luck to them. I'm really happy that they're getting out of that environment, and uh, this might be the most significant thing that we've seen from the royal family. And might be the most significant thing we see in our, you know, in our lives. Hmm. So that that's like the one ironic part of this. But uh, yeah, man, good for them. I'm happy. For yeah, them. good for them. I've always wanted to be a princess, but maybe now I don't want to be. <laughs> well, you're not going <laughs> to face what Megan faces, but who knows? Oh, Just well. find yourself, um, find yourself a rich gay prince. We'll see what happens. Yay! You can be the so. He's going to be the Duke. Are, are you going to be like what? The Pope? Duchess? Yeah, you can't be the Duchess, but I guess you'll be the Duchess. <laughs> I guess you're going to be the Duchess. Oh, well. Anyway, that, that's all I wanted to say about this is just basically Britain doesn't get a right to be shocked about this whole thing. This was coming for a while, and it's very necessary. All right. Any other news you got, Derek? Before No, we I don't have any other news. Cool. Then we're going to go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me. Um, before we do that, though, we just want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. 
Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the Come Follow Me, which is First Nephi chapters 8 through 10, a big focus of which is the is Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. Now, I, I didn't think too much about what would be the best way to go about this. I don't know if we want to go over all the symbolism that is present in this, uh, in this, uh, in these chapters, or if we want to talk about their interpretations before we launch into what we think about this vision. Do, do you have a preferred way that we go about this, Derek? No, I think let's just kind of wander through it and see what we see what say. <laughs> see what we say. All right. Okay. So, um, Derek, where would you like to start with regard to the vision? I've already been talking a bunch as it is. Uh, what do you want to start with uh, in talking about First Nephi chapters 8 through 10? Well, let's look at how this whole dream is set up. So Nephi in, in real life is actually in a wilderness. And in the first verse of First, uh, of first Nephi chapter 8, they're actually collecting seeds and grain and f- and and these uh, fruits. And I'm like, look, so I think that's what they're, where they are. They're in the wilderness thinking about their food. And then he goes to bed. Maybe he goes to bed hungry. And then he has this dream. And in this dream, he, one thing that I, I I don't know the Book of Mormon as well as, as probably a lot of people do. One thing I just noticed here is that it starts out in the dream. He's in a dark and dreary wilderness, and he spends many hours in darkness, and then he cries out into prayer to the Lord, and that's what prompts the vision of the tree of life. And I think that speaks to us when we're in a wilderness or we're in a, in a, spla- a place that's not safe and how we have the right as the birthright as children of God to cry out to God. And I think it's really interesting the language he uses in verse 8. He says, after I had traveled for that, for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would. And this language here is echoes Psalm 51, mm-hmm. that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And that basically comes directly from Psalm 51, verse 1, where David was in a really tight spot. And probably the worst and the lowest moment of his life mm-hmm. after... Uh, the incident with Uriah and Bathsheba. And so he's, I think that's, that speaks to me where like sort of at the worst moments in our life is when we're ready to receive revelation. And when we're ready to uh, call out. And when we call out to the Lord. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important, both for individuals, like when we're pressed up against a wall, that's when we're going to get some answers. And us as a church as well. Yeah. Um, when we're we as a church are backed into a corner, I'm thinking the whole polygamy issue. Mm-hmm. Then that's when we're ready to actually get some revelation that we weren't prepared for beforehand. Right. And then I also wanted to point out that w- when he gets to the, then he sees this tree, and this fruit is very sweet. And I think in our contemporary world, we're so used to refined sugar. We're used to there being plentiful amounts of sweet things. But in the ancient Near East, that wasn't true. The only sweet things they had were basically fruit and honey. Mm. They didn't have dessert every day like we do. They uh, So something sweet was a very special, precious treat that wasn't, you know, 
like our American, we have sugar in everything. We have sugar in our barbecue sauce. Oh, we wow. have sugar in our cornbread. We have sugar in our everything. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it was in the ancient world. So I think tapping into what it was like in the ancient world really highlights this is something special. And then we get to... Well, then, what do we want to talk about this... Um, the path and the rod of iron. Certainly. Yeah. I, I do want to discuss that. Uh, before we do, though, there is yeah. uh, do you, do you want to talk about after Lehi arrives or before he arrives, this rod of iron that he sees? Either way. Okay. Yeah. Cool. How about you? I want to know what you think so far. All right. There's uh, just one thing. First of all, great, great insight. Like, I read right past that verse. Didn't even occur to me that this was something that we might want to bring up. Um, you know, just the fact that we are most prepped to receive personal revelation when we're backed into a dark corner or, you know, just in general, the circumstances under which we are prompted to seek personal revelation. But um, this part right here, right after Lehi partakes of this fruit, something that always stands out to me when I when I read these verses was that um, when. Oh, gosh. It's that it's what happens after Lehi partakes of this fruit and also makes note of how the fruit tastes. Now, first of all, it should be named that the fruit that is uh, spoken of here uh, represents the love of God, which he showed by giving his son to us to be our savior. Like that is the common accepted interpretation of the tree of life and the fruit thereon. So what happens after Lehi partakes of this fruit is of particular importance to me because this is how I gauge my conversion as a disciple of Christ. The first thing he wanted to do was share it with his family. So let's just uh, read this verse real quick. This is verse this is verse 13. Right after Neph- right after Lehi describes the uh, fruit as desirable above all other fruit. So he says, "And as I cast my eyes round about that perhaps I might also, that I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water, and it ran along, and it was near the tree of which I was partaking the fruit. And I looked to behold from whence it came, and I saw the head thereof a little way off. And at the head thereof I beheld your mother Sariah and Sam and Nephi, and they stood as if they knew not whither they should go. And it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and I also did say unto them with a loud voice that they should come unto me and partake of the fruit which was desirable above all other fruit. And it came to pass that they did come unto me and partake of the fruit also. So this is a theme that we're going to see later in the scriptures, um, you know, in the book of Venus and also with, but this is probably the first instance we see of it where we see somebody experiencing the love of God, somebody tasting of the fruit of the tree, tree of life. And then the very next thing we read is them expressing a desire for the welfare of those closest to them. And in Lehi's case, that was his family. First thing he wanted to do after he tasted of the fruit was share it with his family. And this is this just speaks powerfully to me as somebody who has tasted of the love of God. I always want to be somebody who feels it so regularly and experiences it so powerfully that I want to share it with those who mean the most to me. And one way I like to gauge the depth of my conversion is, do I still feel to share this fruit, this love of God with those closest to me, my family, my closest friends? And 
yeah, it's just something that stands out to me every time. It's just to make sure that I'm in that position. Yeah, you know what's interesting about this is this uh, account is the original Mormon multi-level marketing because he oh experienced gosh. this product, <laughs> and then he's the, his first instinct was I got to get all my family and friends on board and then build up my downline, <laughs> and that's, that's literally the original Mormon multi-level marketing oh gosh. plot. <laughs> I bet somebody has used this before in their multi-level marketing pitch. <laughs> if so, they're going to hell. <laughs> they are going to hell for that. Anyway, that <laughs> that's brilliant, Derek. But yeah, man. Um, in saying that, I don't want to. I I don't want to ostracize people who don't always feel that way. You know, there's a place for people who don't always feel to share what they have with other folks. You know, there's a place for those who are somewhere in between that spectrum. Some but some people who are between not tasting of the fruit and have tasted of the fruit and want to share it with everybody. There's a place for those folks. Yeah, and that goes to show that our missionary work needs to come from a place of depth and authenticity rather Absolutely. than obligation. Because Absolutely. if you're out there just saying something because you're supposed to, it's it's not going to convince anyone. Right. The most powerful missionary work is going to come from people who are deeply converted, people who have tasted of that fruit, and people who mean a lot to you, people who love you, you know? There's a reason Utah is one of the highest baptizing missions. It's because the majority of those baptisms are part member families. These are people yeah. that already have a stake in the uh, the emotional, the spiritual, and physical welfare of those people who are getting baptized. Like it means the most coming from people closest to you. So, yeah, there's there, there's something to be learned there, both about missionary work and about uh, the depth of our conversion. And it goes back to like, what is the church about anyway? Is it about um, winning like numbers? Is it about like proving that we're good because we're getting all these people on our team? No, it's more about this is something amazing. The, the gospel is a technology of becoming and transformation and right. to, to passionately get on board with what Christ is trying to break into this world doing right. and getting getting on board with that. It's not about... You know, do you believe all the right things or even do you belong to this community? It's more about like what becoming transformed. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that yeah. is is really contagious. And I think that's very authentic because we're not trying to fix people. We're not trying to say like we need you on our roster. It's this is amazing and it can add to your life and you can add to our life. Right. And notice that nobody told Lehi what to do after he tasted of that fruit. Like he instinctively beckon to his family because that just seemed the right thing to do. If you get something so awesome, you just want to share it. Like that's a natural consequence of experiencing anything awesome. If I go to a dope restaurant, I'm going to want my friends to go and try it. If I see a great movie, I'm going to be like, y'all got to go see it. If I experience the love of mm -hmm. God the way that Lehi did, I'm going to want to share it with other folks. Yeah, like that's just a natural consequence. And if I hear a good joke, I'm going to tell everyone. Dag blasted Derek. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's that's how it ought to work. It shouldn't be a compulsory thing. It shouldn't be an obligatory thing. It should be authentic. It should be honest. It should come from a genuine desire of wanting other people to experience the greatness you've experienced. Is there anything else you want to say about that particular no, passage? No, no. Okay. Um, okay. I think the next thing I'm going to talk about is the great and spacious building. Is there anything that would go well before that, Derek, that you wanted to bring up? Maybe let's just talk about the rod of iron. Let's talk about the because rod of iron. Because it's 
something that people might not work realize is that, and this might set up the conversation for the great and spacious. I building, think it's going to is that the whole the pr- whole purpose of the rod of iron is to make the path accessible when it's blocked due to the mists of darkness. So it's really it, it's an uh, talks about ability and reasonable accommodation and accessibility. And I think this right. is a great uh, a great way of saying look. The gospel is supposed to help you. It's right. not supposed to hurt you. Right. It's supposed right. to help you get through these things. And uh, so many, I think, straight people in the church love holding to the rod of iron. They're like, ooh, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> but what they don't realize is that for many LGBTQ people in the church, that rod of iron is electrified. Mm. And it hurts to hold on to it. Yeah. And it, it it shocks in a way that straight people are immune to it because it, the whole thing is portrayed as designed for them. Yeah. And it's not designed for my people. Mm-hmm. And so when people look at, at the queer people who have to let go of the rod of iron because it hurts so bad, they do so with judgment and disdain rather than empathy and curiosity. Mm. And I think that needs to be named. Certainly. And I think one of the best illustrations of the covenant path we like to use that phrase now, is in Psalm 119, which is a very long meditation on what, on the covenant path, I guess is the word that we would use, talking about how delightful it is to keep the Lord's commandments and to meditate on his word. And and I in there, it's not about, did you check off the right boxes? It's about a transformation of character, which right. I think is the real right. important of the covenant, covenant path. Definitely, definitely. So that's all I wanted to say. And now I want to hear what you have to say about the Great and Spacious Building. I read about the uh, Great and Spacious Building in a bit of a different way this time around. Now, typically what represents, typically the Great and Spacious Building represents what's popular and what's conventional, but also what's wrong in society. It could be things like materialism, excess, sexual immorality, all that other mess. On a smaller scale, though, I believe that there is a great and spacious building that exists within within the church. And in that great and spacious building, there are saints who abide cultural conventions and traditions that are popular and perhaps points of pride, but nonetheless are either incorrect or inconsequential. For example, a long time ago, there was a time when people believed that Coke was against the word of wisdom because it had caffeine. And it took the Quorum of the Fifteen particularly and specifically naming that as incorrect for people to actually believe that was incorrect. It's just an example of one of those cultural conventions or traditions that was generally accepted as doctrine or policy for a long time in this church. And we'd always judge people harshly who would drink a caffeinated soft drink. And that was, that was a problem. But uh, there's something more significant and something more recent that the church currently has which is uh, more insidious when it comes to this great and spacious building. And that's obviously um, the, the policy that denies certain privileges based on sexual orientation, despite that policy not really having, a, having root in Scripture, which is the Word of God, which is this iron rod. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But subsequently, homophobia has become... Uh, the norm in the church and those who affirm gay relationships become the subject of scorn or spiritual dispossession. So in this reading, we have LGBTQ folks and their allies partaking of the fruit, the love of God, 
while folks in the great and spacious building characterized by the pride and vain imagination of the world. I, I love that description that Nephi uses, by the way, of the great and spacious building. Um, we watch those folks mock and discourage them from partaking of this fruit. So I feel pride and vain imagination is actually a great way to describe homophobia because homophobia is inherently prideful since it supposes a superiority to gay folks on the basis of orientation. And such an idea is pure fiction, a.k.a. a vain imagination. And uh, I had an experience with this recently when I interviewed for my Temple Recommend and the person interviewing me told me that it was okay to feel as I do about the policies affecting LGBTQ saints, but... I wasn't allowed to act on that belief by supporting or promoting teachings that affirmed that existence. And that just didn't seem very honest to me. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody that they're able to believe one way, but if they're not allowed to, if they're not allowed to act on that belief, then you're forcing somebody to, to be dishonest. And, um, I feel like that's what's necessary in order for me personally to hold on to the iron rod. I have to be able to do it in a way that affirms uh, LGBTQ saints. Otherwise, I'm letting go and I'm letting myself be subjected to the mist of darkness and also the people in the great and spacious building who are upholding homophobia as a convention, as, as a tradition, as a doctrine, when that doesn't actually have any basis in the word of God, which again is this, uh, is this iron rod. So th 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 this is just all a kind of long and convoluted way of saying that we very much have a great and spacious building in this church and homophobia is one of its most popular conventions. Yeah. I just wanted to point out in support of what you said, if you look at first Nephi eight verse uh, 30, 27, when it talks about the description of the people inside. Ah, yeah. It talks about, it's filled with people, both old and young male and female and their manner of dress was exceedingly fine. So really all it tells us about it is it talks about their economic privilege. Uh -huh. It talks about how their superiority, their stance of privilege leads into what happens next. And they're mocking. They were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those. So I think they're, they're mocking and their disdain for people less than that they think are inferior comes out of their privilege because they're, they're placed right next to each other here. And I think that's, that's important to name. I also feel like that can be a metaphor for just the access they have yeah. to, to, you know, um, to privileged society. Because, you know, that privilege could be wealth. That privilege could also be thinking a certain way. Right. Like right. the same way whiteness isn't so much a race so, that, so much as it is a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of being. And that is granting these folks privilege. Right. Sorry, you had a thought and I cut you off in the I middle don't, of it. That's all I had oh, for okay. that piece. Cool. But yeah, man, just this whole this whole thing, great and spacious building is we, we, we could read this any way we wanted to. But um, I think it's just very important to realize that the great and spacious building isn't limited to folks outside the church. It very much exists within the church. And uh, sometimes holding on to the iron rod is going to mean defying convention and perhaps even uh, defying folks in leadership. Um, in the name of, in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's just something we got to be prepared to do lest we end up like the folks in verse, uh, verse 28. Yeah. I mean that, that, uh, kind of flows into, to a lot of things that I want to say. 
And part of what we want to do is help read, help our listeners read the scriptures with more power and more, um, sort sort of more a sense of empowerment and mastery and usefulness that they can get things. And so here's what I one of the tricks that I want to teach. Maybe it's not a trick, but a lot of people they're looking at the text and they think, well, what does it mean? Another important question to ask is, how does this text function, or how does this interpretation of the text function? In our, in our world here, in our world of discourse today. Because a lot of people will use the great and spacious building the exact opposite way that you did. They'll say, yeah. well, the world is pro-gay, which is absolutely not true, or else we would, all, we would, have, we would have had gay marriage everywhere all along. And right. m- gay marriage isn't even the most important thing. Right. But we would have had you know, the rest of the world being completely pro-LGBT until you've, you, know, you have a prophet coming along and saying no. But that's not how it is. The world is homophobic. It just is, and I think the kingdom of God breaking in is is really advancing against that homophobia. But how does this function here? So a lot of people say, well, the world is attacking the church, and 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 I get th- and they take this legitimate criticism of some of our uh, policies and teachings, and and treat that as an attack, and treat that treat what I think as legitimate and fair criticism that we should actually listen to and take into account both from outside and inside the church, and become defensive. They're using it to insulate and protect their comfort. Mm. And this gets to the point of how does this text function if some people are using this text to make themselves immune to criticism, to shore up their their biases and privilege and insulate themselves from anything that will call them to repentance. And I think once you analyze this and see, oh, this is how the text is functioning, for these people, you can really see the perversity of how this it gets turned around. Mm. So, what I want to uh, so another question to ask is how which this interpretation, who is it making comfortable, and I and the the wrong interpretation, the one that the great and spacious building is the pro gay people, that serves to make the straight people more comfortable in right. the church. Right. And we always have to. So I think one of the main points of the gospel is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Nice. Whereas most people self-medicate with the scriptures to afflict those that are already afflicted and to comfort those who are already in a comfortable position, mm-hmm. which is not not at all what Christ ever did. Right. So let's talk about this. What I want to say about this is that every attack on LGBTs is about power, not truth. Mm. Let me say that again. Every attack on LGBTs, in the, especially in the church, is about power and not truth because they've lost the truth argument. Mm-hmm. We're all alike unto God. In Christ, there's no male and female. You know, God, we're all children of God. Love is love. Like the truth is on our side. So all they've got left is trying to use the, the realm of power and to, to silence us to keep us out of leadership, to keep us out of the wards, to do everything we can. I think that's kind of what was behind the, the 2015 policy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an issue of truth, like, because it was an issue of how do we keep LGBT people who are in relationships out of the church, where they can influence people, where they can build relationships with people. And people will know just by meeting us that all those awful things they were told about us can't possibly be true. Mm. So that's what I want, want us to think about is how how all these attacks. And I want you to pay attention, listeners. Like every attack that's about LGBTs, look at how it's really about power. 
and not about truth because most of the truths have already been conceded like whether mm. gays can change whether it's a choice whether it's you know natural whether it's you know part of who we are what like all of that stuff has been conceded so now all of the attacks will just be about power and so let's talk about oh yeah i it just bugs me how so many straight members of the church will instantly use this text about the straight great and spacious building against pro LGBT people. It just seems automatic for them that that's yeah. the way to do that. Yeah. But um, the homophobes that want to use this against me, what they don't realize is that I literally school people for a living. You do. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about this and I'm going to connect this and sort of close the circle back by, here's another way of, here's another empowerment tool, another secret of how to, use the scriptures in an empowering way is is not just focus on the scripture that you have in front of you but think of is there a, another scripture that's sort of complementary to it something that fills out the details or is in contrast to it in some way because the scriptures are a lot like a pharmacy like if you go into a pharmacy and pull random drugs off the shelf and just self-medicate you're gonna probably not do something right, right. But that's exactly what people do with the scriptures and in a pharmacy, there could be two different drugs that have opposite effects. One will you know, maybe raise your blood pressure. One will lower it. Something like that. I don't know. But part of being a good physician in prescribing is knowing which drug you need to apply to the right uh, you know, disease or symptom. And I think that's, that's really where this comes in. And so some people will want to apply this text one way, but there's... But there's something in Alma chapter 4 that really sheds light on what's going on. So let's turn to Alma 4. I'm going to look particularly at verse 10. And it says, And thus ended the eighth year of the reign of the judges, and the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fail in its progress. Hmm. I think that's so interesting because a lot of people take criticism of the church, whether it was you know before 1978 or afterward about race or about women or about LGBTs, and they say, well, look, it's all those idiots outside the church. They don't have the truth, so too bad. Like, they, they immunize themselves. You know, it's centering the white comfort, the straight comfort, the male comfort, all of these things. But what, what we're, le we're learning here in Alma's time is that it's the church's fault because it was mm -hmm. the wickedness of the church that was a great embarrassment. And it was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. So we can't take all the mocking of the world and say, oh, it's on them. Right. Some of that right. is because they see our great wickedness. And I think racism is a great wickedness in our yeah. church. And that needs to be named. Yeah. And I'm really shocked that, that apparently our leaders have put more time into spelling out their views on caffeine than they have spelling out their views on racism. Yep. Yep. Right? I mean, you go into the Gospel Library app right now and try to, like, if you search for the word racism in the Gospel Library app, you're going to come up with three results. And let's look in the context of Alma 4 to see what this wickedness was, because it wasn't like drinking and having sex and all those other things that will people in the church will foist up on the world. It's right. actually stuff in the church, like verse 8 talks about their hearts being set upon riches. You've got economic um, privilege and economic injustice here 
being the first thing that I can see. Then they're, then they're scornful towards one another. And they began to persecute those that did not believe according to their own will and pleasure. This is verse 8. That's mm-hmm. the wickedness in the church. Yep. Being closed-minded, being cruel to outsiders, being wealthy when other people are poor, that's the wickedness that embarrasses the church that make other people not want to join it. Mm-hmm. That we can't go back around and claim, oh, that's just them mocking us in the great and spacious building. No, mm-hmm. we got we to gotta set our own house in order here. Right. right. And and the people that are criticizing the church actually have some points because it's our wickedness that is leading them to not to, join or to, to not, not want join. anything to do with us. And let's look at look at verse 11 in Alma 4. Um, Alma saw the wickedness of the church and he also saw that the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers on from one piece of iniquity to the other. And then in verse 12, yea, he saw great inequality among the people. This is the wickedness is even within the church. There's inequality. And that is going to embarrass the church. And that will get perceived as mocking. But this is actually a great counterbalance to the way people are going to use the great and spacious building. Mm. Because here's what they did. This great inequality among the people, verse 11, some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked, and those who were hungry and those who were thirst, and those who were sick and afflicted. So this gets back to what I was saying about prioritizing those who are afflicted and comforting them. And I just, what do you think about this idea of, see, that's why you need to know the scriptures well, because if people are going to use one scripture here, you should be able to find a counterbalancing scripture somewhere else to mm. actually fill out the details and shed light. What do you think about that strategy? I like it a lot, and it makes it makes a ton of sense. In fact, um, that's been a lot of my strategy when it came to affirming affirming uh, black folks and is and also affirming LGBTQ people. Y'all, you always see people who want to defer to those scriptures and DNC one thirty eight or DNC twenty one five, but there's counter counterbalances sometimes in the same sections of doctrine and covenants that affirm that yeah we should always listen we should listen to the prophet as if you know he were the voice of God, but in the same book of scripture we're also learning that we should only listen to them when they're moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like there's always something, and you know this has been a blessing in my study is anytime I find something that I feel like is anti-affirming, there's always something that is affirming on that other side. And there's always going to be something that affirms love as the greatest of, um, as the greatest of all commandments. So I really like this strategy of finding as a counterbalance uh, other scriptures to make sure that we are not reading malice or right. reading unchristlike conduct into some of our most favorite allegories or scriptures. Right, and I think when you add those those scriptures that are challenging in the way they're reading, I think when you interpret them in context yeah. and in a healthy and responsible manner, they're not actually uh, have the effect that some people are going to use them to have. So, right, that's the other thing. And I think that's that. why having these other scriptures to shed light on it really um, helps to put people in their place from being able to use those scriptures against us. Mm-hmm. But this goes gets back to the heart of the problem that even among pro LGBTQ people in the church and even among you know allies and LGBTQs ourselves a lot of the conversation about what's going on centers the needs and comforts of straight people yeah. and cisgender people and that that's a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. and we need to stop centering straight comfort and and say things some things that are going to make people feel uncomfortable but the problem is these sort of fragile 
saints are gonna are gonna think that the spirit is some thing that's gonna flee when there's something uncomfortable right, right? that's what and what they're doing is they're conf- they're they're think they're confusing feeling the spirit with feeling their bias and prejudice right with feeling comfortable in that bias and prejudice and so what's offended is their their prejudice and and they and they'll just claim oh when you said that the spirit left the room i'm like no it didn't maybe you left the room in terms of <laughs> what's going on but the spirit's here the spirit dwells where people are uncomfortable if you look at our our covenants to mourn with those that mourn that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. to bury some to bear someone else's burden that's literally uncomfortable mm-hmm. it is the spirit is asking us to do stuff that's uncomfortable yeah. and when this and yeah. when we're moved by the spirit it's going to feel uncomfortable sometimes especially mm-hmm. if you are in a p- position where you have the ability and the privilege to help someone else's burden it's not going to feel like cozy there's going to be a joy in it yes but it's yeah. not going to be convenient right and I think this is what we who are white really need to do in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those who are straight, those who are, are male, those who are any position of privilege, we need to be very sensitive to how we are using the texts. Are we using this to, to keep ourselves comfortable? Are we, like Christ, shedding some of that comfort for the sake of those who, who need it? In fact, that's, I mean, that's the model. You just said it. We're shedding some comfort in, for the sake of those of for the sake of those who need it. That is, that was the whole mission of Christ was introducing himself, his own self into poverty, into abject poverty so that all of us through that poverty might become like him, might become, you know, what he is and then some, or sorry, become like him. I'm just going to say it there. Yeah. It's this whole idea. I, I really like you naming that though, that this idea that just because we feel uncomfortable, we're not feeling the spirit is, totally false and it's an expression of their privilege because they get to claim the room they have enough power and prestige and and claim to the room that they can just say oh like the spirit's gone and so i'm not gonna listen to you because you said something that really called me to repentance Mm -hmm. you know being called to repentance is one of the things the spirit does it is in the scriptures it's in the next come follow me lesson the wicked take the truth to be hard yeah like if you hear the truth and you don't like it, that doesn't mean the spirits left the room. Your feelings might just be hurt, and that's okay. You got to be able to embrace that. Otherwise, you will remain like Laman and Lemuel and just not ever be able to repent simply because you feel this entitlement to discomfort, this privilege, and whatever other status you, whatever other status you have. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for naming that. Is all I wanted. To say. And what I want to name is that. This comfort that they have and they're claiming is actually false comfort because in the end they're not as healthy and not as in tune with Christ Mm -hmm. and not who they need to be as they would be if they actually got with the program, right? It's it's a false sense of comfort. It's actually a, a deception. I think the real comfort is that when we're all able to be ourselves in an, in an organic, healthy functioning organism that we're all, you know, this goes back to Paul in first Corinthians, uh, 12 and Romans 12 that it's one body with mem- many members if my foot is hurting the rest of me I can't ignore the foot it hurts right. everyone right. so we're all worse off so you can't just the, the, the comfort that they're trying to get is illusory it it's imaginary yeah. it's not even real and I'm reading this uh, I'm reading this book right now called uh, Dying of Whiteness by uh, Jonathan Metzl and it's basically about this whole idea he it basically took 
a section of Michael Eric Dyson's sermon about how racism is going to hurt all of us and makes a whole book out of it, basically by claiming that um, oftentimes the people in positions of privilege are going to engage in behavior that endangers their own physical and mental welfare just for the sake of feeling like they're better than somebody else. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it doesn't just like talk voting about, for Trump. Right. Like voting for Trump, you know, like, like Trump himself admitted that a lot of his economic policy is not going to be in the best interest of people in the flyover States in the, in that middle class. But like, you know, this, this is a tale as old as racism itself is just that I may be poor, but at least I'm not one of you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is something that regularly happens with people in positions of privilege or power. They don't just want, they want to be better, even if it kills them. And that's the, that's the whole premise of this book, but it's also goes well Mm -hmm. along with what you just said. A lot of people have to understand that, um, you know, racism, homophobia, all those things, they don't just hurt the people on the margins. They hurt all of us. This, and it's, really important to view this anti-racism work not as work in our behalf but work in yours as well because it's Mm -hmm. not just going to take pressure off of us it's also going to heal you which is why we do this work in the first place i just wanted to uh, read something that uh, bomani jones said yesterday something that goes along with what you just said about uh you know being careful of people's feelings He said, we're not going to get to the bottom of this or any other issue that matters with race as long as we keep centering the feelings of white people when we talk about this. And if we keep talking about this in a way where we're just trying not to hurt people's feelings, then nothing is ever going to get done because the only way to fix this is to hurt people's feelings. Whenever this comes up, somebody calls me and they want to do an interview and they ask me, well, what do you think we can do to change it? The hell do you mean we? We got the power to push them, except we don't like to hurt white people's feelings. White people need to hear this. So... The hurt feelings, this is part of the process of healing. Like, we don't heal and we don't grow without some measure of pain and discomfort. Like, what's that Schwarzenegger quote? Some, like, pain is weakness leaving the body. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, there, there should have been more outrage at the people who are mad at the simple phrase, Black Lives Matter. I, I, I am so naive. When I first heard that phrase, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. There's no way that anyone could oppose that. And look how <laughs> look how wrong I was. Yeah. Look how wrong I was. Yeah. Because these white people got and I shouldn't say that like I'm not white, right? I can't I forget that every now and again myself. Like so I'm 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 definitely complicit in 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 this, but there's there's white people who were saying, "No, all lives matter." And like, "How dare you?" like and and like, "Why are you this this simple st- statement that should be un uncontro- not controversial at all black lives matter got all these people upset and people were more upset at that phrase than the actual injustices uh, that were being inflicted upon black people in our mm-hmm. country like mm-hmm. th- they they've got their priorities so backwards it's because they're centering white comfort and same thing with Jeremiah Wright like when he said his things about which is very much a book of Mormon and biblical view of like if a nation is is wicked and 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 being unjust towards a subset of its people, God will curse that land. Mm-hmm. That that that's all he was saying. And then people, white people, got got upset. And then the conversation between Barack Obama and Jeremiah Wright, 
now completely changed to center the needs and comfort of white people. And I was so upset mm. that Obama did that. Yeah. Because well, I thought did he have? Because I thought Obama here. This is me being naive again. I thought yeah. Obama <laughs> would have just explained it and said, mm-hmm. look, this is what he's saying. And this is why. And this is an authentic, you know, expression of the biblical uh, view of, of condemnation and judgment that is actually in the Bible and that he mm-hmm. has the, a pastor has the right to say, and as someone who's been a student of, of James Cone has th- that's the framework behind what he's doing. And, yeah. and Obama's like, Nope, you're gone. I mean like, no. Yeah. Uh, that was like, because everything that, that was going on there was centering the needs and comfort of white people. Right. And we've, we had, yeah, Sorry. No, it's cool. We went off, and that's fine. But this is all important to the conversation of what it means to make sure that we get comfortable with this idea of, you know, discomfort. And here's my theory is probably for allies to do is ask, are you, are you uncomfortable? And if you're not, you're probably not doing the work, or you're probably not listening to the right people. <laughs> or you're not, you're not holding yourself out as someone who can be told the truth. Yeah. If I can do this for a minute, just minute, just uh, shout out to uh, Papa Osler who had me and my sister on his podcast the other day. That was great. Thank you. And uh, he addressed this idea. He talked about how during his interview with Tacovi and I, there were parts of that interview that actually made him uncomfortable. But he was able to acknowledge that it was in this discomfort that he was able to achieve, you know, some growth. And uh, this is something that I probably respect most about Papa Osler is his willingness to get uncomfortable and have people on his show that don't think like him, don't act like him, that don't have the same privileges as he does, but he nonetheless gives them a platform uh, for their message to get out there, and he gets comfortable in that discomfort. So shout out to Papa Osler for that. Thank you very much. Well, that's all I had to say about um – Lehi's vision. There's just one thing in chapter nine, and I wanted to touch on real briefly, I, and then I'll then I'll be done. If that you know that's a miracle that I'm done talking about the scriptures. <laughs> but I w- just wanted to bring out in chapter nine of First Nephi something very interesting. So Nephi is just being very uh, self-aware about his writing. He says. Um, in verse 5 and 6, wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him. These plates meaning the small plates of Nephi that we're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. Wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all the power until the fulfilling of all his words. And the context behind this is that he also had two sets of plates, the large plates of Nephi, which Joseph translated, and that became the first 116 pages that were then lost. And, um, and as a backup, God had already instructed Nephi to make this, this smaller set of pra- plates focusing on the ministry and the religious aspects of, of the Nephite. Uh, culture and, and nation. So what what I take this to mean is that God has backup plans, and this isn't something that's insignificant or just sort of a, a corny point. And it has to do with how how we um, and the God has that God actually has backup plans 
that the church leaders don't know about. Like Nephi had no idea why he was supposed to make these small plates. And Joseph Smith didn't have any idea what these plates were for until after losing the 116 pages. So even the church leaders don't know about all the backup plans that mm. God has built into this. And I think mm. this is very relevant for queer people in the church Definitely. because we're told we don't fit the plan. I'm like, do the you worship the God who has backup plans built into the backup plans? <laughs> Like even our our salvation for the dead is in some sense a backup plan. Now, you, even myself, when I'm using the word backup plan, is really centering the privilege, which I said was we're, we're not supposed to do. We're mm -hmm. supposed to send it, but it, but from the standpoint of straight people, whatever plan God has for queer people, it's going to look like a backup plan. Mm. But God isn't dumb. He didn't send me to this earth to forget about me. Right. Like I willingly came to this earth. I knew there was a plan from the beginning. I know there's a plan now, and I think that's uh, just a solid point to make. What do you think of pointing this out of the that God always has backup plans that the leaders don't know about? I love it, man. Like, I really do love it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I have anything to add to that. If it's all the same to you, Derek, I'm just really relishing in that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you caught that little bit about addressing it as a backup plan as if, you know, what's happening to gay folks is going to be an afterthought or their comeuppance is going to right. be an afterthought. Right. But, you know, I, I really like using this uh, scripture in First Nephi 9 to acknowledge the fact that God is in control. He's always been in control. And he knows what the future of this church is going to look like in a way that includes all people. And just because we don't know that doesn't give us a right to assume that this is the way it's going to be forever. And we should let and hold space for a God who has a plan for everybody to return to him in a way that lets them live authentically and fill the measure of their creation. So I just really, I just really appreciate that. Thank you for bringing that up. It's and a the, brilliant insight. The other thing is the reason why God even had this backup plan is because a church leader made a mistake. Joseph should Ooh, not have given, should not have given the play the the 116 manuscript pages to Joseph uh, to uh, Martin Harris but he did but God's bigger than that and God mm -hmm. already had a backup plan to compensate for his lapse in judgment how many um, how many times d will it happen in the history of this church that a church leader will make a lapse in judgment and God will have a plan around it mm -hmm. like we've we've seen this in our lifetime already our church leaders making mistakes like the 2015 policy right and then god having something else in mind that's a great point i didn't even think about that whole idea of this whole wise purpose in god is basically him compensating for a mistake that a church leader would make several hundred years later that's that's right. brilliant i'm glad you named that i'm glad you think i'm brilliant you are brilliant, <laughs> so are you thank you man um that's great, man. Anything else from uh, First Nephi 9 or No, nope, that's, that's it. We can talk a little bit more about these things next week again. Yeah, I was about to say, like, next week is going to be the interpretation of the vision. And uh, a couple other interesting things to note about uh, the vision that Nephi has and the circumstances under which he has. But we will save that for next week when we discuss, uh, oh gosh, I don't even know what next week's lesson is, but it's 11 to 17, I think, maybe? Does Something that like right? that. We get Nephi's... Uh, interpretation of the vision, his whole ap apocalyptic uh, 
vision of, of future things. It's, it's pretty cool, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that'll do us for the Come Follow Me section, which means we get to move on to the prayer roll. Do you have anything for the prayer roll, Derek? No, I don't. All right. So time is short, but I do want to discuss something that I'm pretty sure I have discussed on the show before, but I still see it every now and again. Every now and again, I'll see a long social media post by a member of the church announcing a transition of faith, which is something that already rubs me the wrong way to begin with, but isn't in and of itself harmful. I don't, I don't think anyway. I'm for doing anything that allows people to heal right up to the point that it starts exploiting other folks. What, what I mean when I say that is that over the course of my time on social media, I've seen several of these long posts, usually by a straight white person citing racism and homophobia in the church as a reason that they're leaving the church. And I just want to be like, I, I just want to be like, hold up, what? Like, but my initial reaction is, well, if you're leaving the church because of racism, what does that say about me, a black person, someone who willingly stays in the church in spite of, and perhaps you could even argue because of it. And further, if you're against racism and my oppression, then then how does your leaving help that? Like, right. What does that do for me? My, my whole thing is if racism, homophobia, or any of the other isms and phobias are the primary or only reason you struggled with the church, then centering our pain in that struggle would not lead you to leave us to battle our oppression alone. Like, if anything, it would lead you to stay and help us because that actually addresses our pain and it it actually addresses our oppression. But when you leave, that doesn't address our pain and it actually distances you from it, which, for one thing, is a privilege not afforded us on the margins. And, And two, it sends the message that you're less indignant about the injustices we face and more inconvenienced by them. It right. sends the message that you want to be in a space where you're not made to reckon with our oppression as we are. It sends the message that you want to deal with our oppression on your terms. It sends the message that your discomfort is more important than my pain. Like, ironically, while claiming to support our cause, you leave us worse off than you found us while using our pain as an excuse. It's, it's disrespectful, it's dishonest, and ex- exploitative. So... If, if you're going to name the plight of the marginalized groups as a cause for your disaffection, then make sure you at least acknowledge that it's not really our pain or the injustice we face that pushed you out, but your own privilege. Because privilege says, I shouldn't have to deal with being associated with your oppression. Lafon. Well, one thing I want to say real quick is these people who leave the church and then say it was because it was anti-gay or something. I want to know, what did you do, did you do when you were a member? Did you do everything you could? Did you do the work or not? Or did you leave just because you were embarrassed to have this associated with your name? That's mm-hmm. that's not any work, right? Mm-hmm. If You should have done everything you could um, while you were inside where you could do the most good. That's all I want to say. No, that's great. That's great. Because this is an... That's, a, that's another part of it, too, is oftentimes the people who are citing this thing, the breaking point comes along with leaving the church. They're just like, okay, I'm going to do all this work 
or I'm going to say all these things in support of LGBTQ folks and black folks, and I'm going to leave the church at the same time. Everything that you do now is suspect to me, because what you just showed me is that you are not willing to sit in that discomfort. So why would I believe that you are willing to sit in that discomfort now that you're outside of the church, now that you have used your privilege to exit this oppressive space and in essence, be more comfortable yourself? You already show me you're not willing to be uncomfortable. So why should I believe anything that you say about the oppression of gay folks or black folks is actually has any bearing on how you want to act in those spheres? Like, I just can't take you seriously after that point. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Derek. And again, I want to say this with all sensitivity and all allowance to people who just feel like their spiritual journeys are best conducted outside of the church. You guys do what you have to do for your own mental and spiritual health. Just you don't have to bring our pain into the conversation to do it. And more often than not, it's not the real reason or the primary reason that y'all are doing it. So just leave our struggles out of your mouths and we would greatly appreciate it. Lafon. Hi. All right. So, um, with that, Derek, do we have, well, let's go over some housekeeping items, Derek. When, where can people find us? Yeah. At beyond the block podcast.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, is there anything we'd like the people to do for us before we let them go, Derek? No, other than share these things. There's basically two things. One, you can share the podcast directly, or you can just sort of summarize some of our teachings and say, this is something I learned this week. Um, Like if you're teaching your families or in your wards or whatever, you don't have to, not everyone has to listen to us directly. You know, you can just share what you've learned with others. And if it comes up, like it did with Lehi. If our if what we talked about have impacted you in such a powerful way that you want to share with others, <laughs> that's the circumstance under which we want you to do it. Ideally, yeah. we would have to say anything. In fact, a lot of you have been, and I want to just echo that we really appreciate a lot of you guys who have been sharing our podcast unprovoked. That means a lot to us because it means we're having a an impact. But, you know, I don't know. In the age of social media, it just feels yeah. like it's necessary. We got to remind y'all. We can't blow up unless y'all show up. Yeah, and the other thing is this is a good way, because if you're wondering, like, oh, I feel bad about racism and homophobia in the church, what can I do? One thing you can do is amplify our voices to places where they wouldn't otherwise get, because there's Mm. some people who wouldn't listen to us, but they'll listen to you when you explain these things to them. So if you amplify our voices in that way, helping us, because we can speak for ourselves, but we can't. what we can't control is who will listen to us and where that will go. So if you can amplify the range of our voices uh, and other, other marginalized individuals as well, especially women in the church, then that will, be, uh, that will be good too. Sweet. That's all I got. We will see you guys next week. See you next week.